Charles Stanley Radio. The latest economic updates, insights and conversations with finance industry experts. So in yet another year of high inflation, expected low growth and gen generally economic turbulence, how does one take back control their finances and their wealth in these times of uncertainty. To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by two experts in the field. Charlotte Lambeth is Director of Private Clients at Charles Stanley, and Martin Vanderwehr is the Business Editor at The Spectator. Welcome both. Well, let's jump right in, Charlotte. What are some of the more worrying trends you're seeing uh, and that you've noticed in light of the cost of living crisis? What is it that your clients are telling you? Where is there increased anxiety when it comes to the protection of wealth and management of wealth for clients at Charles Stanley? Well, Charles Stanley very much prides itself on providing a personal service to clients and so we like to stay on top of what, what is concerning them. So actually we, we did some research in the last couple of months where we were talking to uh, high net worth individuals and, and clients to see what they were thinking about various things. And I think some of the key themes that came out for them of being concerned at the moment perhaps unsurprisingly, was what's going on with inflation, uh, how they're going to provide income, uh, particularly in retirement, um, and what investment returns might look like going forward, given the rather difficult period that we've been through recently. Mm. Martin, can you give us a sense of the current economic climate? I mean, I think a lot of people tuning in today will know that it's not great. Um, but, you know, give us some detail around that and how it's impacting people's attitudes towards their investments. Yes, well, we're, we're in uh, a phase which is very unfamiliar to uh, anyone who wasn't already an adult, either, you know, in the mid-1970s or early 1980s, i.e. a period of sharp inflation. And that is very disconcerting, I think, particularly for people at or approaching retirement, because fairly obviously incomes and especially the retirement income people may have foreseen or arranged for themselves, are not generally index-linked uh, and are not going up in line with inflation, but costs have suddenly jumped. So I think inflation is the biggest issue on the table in front of us. Low growth, which you alluded to, is a problem. You know, there are a whole set of problems in the UK economy, low productivity and so on. All of those feed through probably into low investment returns on equity portfolios in, a, in the longer run. But that's a, that's a different issue. Um, right now, inflation is the worry. It is beginning to peak. It may have peaked around 11% generally, but it's higher than that, clearly, for energy and food costs. It may come down again. Rishi Sunak, I think... <laughs> promised to halve it by the end of the year. It's really nothing to do with him, but it's it, it may halve it. It may halve itself by the end of the year. It may kind of have gone back to what we consider normal, which is, you know, the Bank of England's target range or two, two and a half percent. It may get back there, uh, you know, sometime next year. But having done that, prices will still have gone up by a significant notch. So the the relationship between a relatively fixed income that we may have planned for our retirement and what it actually costs to live will have altered permanently by that. So, so I think that's an absolutely core issue for us to talk about 
today. We certainly will. Uh, before we get into all those details, Charlotte, in the next hour, we want to broke it, uh, focus broadly on investment management in this session. Can you tell us how that fits into the framework of financial planning? Yeah, sure. So I am an investment manager. Um, I've been doing it for the better part of, well, 25 years last year. Um, so uh, I've been doing it for a while, but my role is very much um, fitting in with other advisors for clients and in particular financial planners. So their role is to think about the client's overall position and in particular to work out what products and wrappers are going to help them meet their goals. So that might be things like a pension for retirement planning, it might be life insurance type things or an offshore bond for inheritance tax planning, that type of thing. But once those pots have been identified, my job is then for any of those that might need to be invested to come up with an appropriate strategy for those to make sure that it's going to meet its goal going forward. So whatever time frame it's got, um, any particular requirements, tax issues, all those sorts of concerns, um, my goal is then to do the day-to-day -day buying and selling to make it do that over time. So then I'm constantly checking in with both the client and the financial planner to make sure that the whole thing's still fitting together and the strategy still works. Martin, a very important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, on the top of Charlotte's sort of blotter in every client meeting would be KYC, know your customer. Actually, what I'd say is the customer, the, the, the uh, impending retiree, whatever your age, know your own circumstances is absolutely essential to this. What I mean by that is is that we all have to learn to take a sort of holistic view. Uh, what will my outgoings add up to over the next few years? What could my income add up to? What would I like it to be? How much might I want to pass to my children? Or should I hang on to it all? Should I spend it all on cruise holidays? You know, um, it, it, these are not trivial questions in the sense that anything you do with your money depends on what you want the, re the result to be and how you want to live. Do I live in a house that's much bigger than I need? How expensive would it be to go through all the turmoil of, you know, trading down to a smaller house? These are, these are questions that need to be addressed. And the, the investment portion is, is a piece of that jigsaw. If you want a metaphor <laughs> for current circumstances, Please. one that, that, I don't know if this is a metaphor or not, but anyway, it's a, a vivid example, I would say, reprogram your central heating boiler. What do I mean by that? You may be running energy costs much higher than you need to. When did you last look at the little gadget on the boiler to see if you could reduce it? I did that. I think I probably saved myself a thousand pounds a year. Wow. And that's just one of many, many things people should think of to create a whole picture, what they own, what it can generate for them, what their entitlements are, and so on, and then how to manage the investments that are in there somewhere. And Charlotte, if the role of investment management is done correctly, how can that help to alleviate risk? So risk is absolutely central to everything that I do. It, I, I get very boring talking to clients about risk because it, it really is the cornerstone for what I'm Certainly doing. Certainly not. We're tuning in for it. So <laughs> talk um, about it all you want. So I suppose there's two key elements to risk that, that I want to understand from a client, first of all. Um, one is how much risk can they afford to take? 
So actually, given their circumstances, what happens if, if one of those pots of money that I talked about earlier does go particularly down? I have to admit, clients generally are quite happy for it to go up as much as it likes, but it, it's always on the downside that I get calls. So, you know, that, that's what I tend to talk about. Um, so we need to understand what, what happens. You know, is it just the fact that they feel bad when they get their valuation? Is it the fact they can't have that extra ski holiday or does it impact the gas bill getting paid? You know, how critical is it? So there's the, the financial risk tolerance, but then there's also the emotional risk tolerance because different people feel very differently about how things, um, you know, feel when, it, when they're going up and down. When, when you turn on the news and you get that lovely little chart that they tend to put on the picture with the red line sort of shooting downwards and you get news that the Fitzy's had a bad day, do you just kind of go, oh, fine, and move on? Or actually, does that mean you're suddenly struggling to get to sleep that night because you're worried about what's happening? Um, and the two things are not quite the same. Um, just because you can take risk doesn't mean you're comfortable doing it. Um, and sometimes people might be very comfortable with the idea of it, but I have to encourage them not to because actually it wouldn't be sensible in their overall circumstances. That's a, such an interesting point, that sort of emotional toll that it can take. Um, you know, I, I'm not a homeowner yet, I hope to be one day, but I have quite a lot of friends that are. And, you know, they've been weighing up whether to get um, a fixed-term mortgage and with interest rates doing what they're doing, you know, it feels for a lot of them like an emotional decision and are they going to be able to handle it if interest rates are going up or down the disappointment the, the frustration that they might feel around that absolutely and weighing up on the one hand the does it feel good to have the consistency you know at least if you go down the fixed route you know exactly what you're getting into for a period of time does that give you a high level of reassurance or if we were to find that interest rates peak soon and actually over a, a five-year term perhaps actually during that time interest rates go back down again would they be feeling really frustrated that they're missing out on on that downward trajectory different people are going to approach that very differently and part of our job is very much trying to get under their skin initially to understand how they feel about missing out on an opportunity versus protecting themselves from a negative period. Mm. But Martin, in times of economic turbulence, these are very difficult calls for even an investment manager to make. I mean, in 2019, nobody could have predicted what was going to happen to the supermarkets and, you know, their huge profits in 2020 for external factors. And, uh, you know, 2020, you wouldn't have predicted where energy prices would be now because of completely external factors. Um, how does one go about managing this? Well, you can only act upon what you know now. As it were, you can't you can't provide for all possible changes of circumstances. It's um, probably unwise to uh, react to short-term changes in a you know in a very energetic, dramatic way in relation to your portfolio of assets. Um, so you have to kind of be calm enough to ride out the surprises. I think. Um, I'm sure Charlotte does this, but whenever I've ever talked to a, a, a wealth manager, they always say, do you think you're high, medium or low risk? Uh, and I always think I'm sort of medium to low. I'm not a natural risk taker. I don't expect a port managed portfolio to do 
much more than track the indices over a long period of time. If your money does that after you've paid the fees and the, you know, the size of the fees is an important factor in that, then you've you've done okay. You you know, if if you are a bit more of a risk taker, well, you may have a separate pot that you do the risk stuff with. But your core mm. savings, you should. Uh, not panic in the short term. Take a long-term view in which you you want a reasonable return, but you're not expecting something spectacular and you don't want your manager to lose your capital. That's where it goes. Uh, you want to pay a modest fee. You want all the tax advantages you can have around that. Uh, and those are the important things. But, but staying calm when circumstances change. Um, the moments one can now recall when circumstances really changed. If we think back to 2008, there was a really, you know, a moment of existential crisis then where people thought, my goodness, my savings will be wiped out. The ATM will stop working tonight. Do you know what I mean? Well, we kind of came through that, you know, two or three years later, it didn't look so bad in hindsight. We've come through COVID. We're coming through this inflation spike. So that may sound a bit bland, but I think you have to take a medium to long term view of all of this stuff, don't panic as they. And Martin, you're, you're picking up on an important theme there, and I'll put this to you, Charlotte, about expectation. What are reasonable expectations when people are looking at investment management right now? It does depend on the level of risk that they're prepared to take. Obviously, the, the lower the risk, the lower the return. Mm -hmm. um, but can anybody at the moment really win at the inflation game? I mean, it, it feels like perhaps some expectations, specifically at the moment, might be slightly out of touch with reality. If someone was to say to me, with, with double-digit inflation, can I get an investment that's going to, if for sensible risk, outperform inflation and give me growth above that. For practical terms, I'm going to say no, no. you can't. Um, because with the best will in the world, even with interest rates having risen considerably from where they've been for the last 15 years, um, we're still only in a, a sort of 4% type zone for, for sort of interest rates and so on. And equity returns are going to use that as a, a base. Um, and when they're looking at dividends and so on, how much they reward investors for taking the risk of, of going with, with a shareholding rather than a, a slightly safer investment, um, you know, bears that in mind. But you're still not going to be looking at anything that's going to get close to, to a 10 plus percent return on, on that. Um, now, I'm not saying that there's no holding out there that, that isn't going to do that. But as an overall portfolio, it's not reasonable. So, I mean, I suppose medium term expectations at the minute, we would say maybe fixed interest markets, total return, four to five percent, equity markets, maybe six, seven percent, something like that might be reasonable. But of course, when you're building a portfolio, you're putting together a basket of different assets. So you will have some that have lower returns, some that have higher returns, but trying to smooth the, the ups and downs that intrinsically go with all of those different types. Martin, do you agree people have to manage their expectations as well as their actual investments? Yes, I do. So clearly, to aim for the, the uh, set of investments that might beat the current rate of inflation, you're going to place yourself in the high-risk category. We can talk about what those kind of things might be. Um, so... Uh, a sensible expectation for the time being was you might be undershooting inflation if you're not taking too much risk. 
there are choices. There are always choices. So a choice that would again be presented to you by, you know, any wealth manager meeting a client would be what is it? What are your ethical choices? For example, if you want a, you know, a greener and cleaner and no defence stocks and no no um, carbon energy stocks in your portfolio, you're probably um, settling for a lower returns right now than if you opened that door. That's a difficult, you know, moral question to face. But actually, if you want higher returns at the moment, big energy, That's big oil, is. those sort of things are, are producing spectacular returns. So there are some difficult questions to be to be faced, but there are there are choices if you want to make them. Well, I want to get into the details of that, but first I just want to remind people who are watching from the office or at home that you can submit a question to Charlotte or Martin. Um, there's a little box right below your screen. You can submit a question. It goes straight to the Spectator TV and it comes straight to me. Um, and some are already coming in, which is fantastic. I, I already have a fairly long list here, but we'll hopefully have, have room for quite a few questions. So uh, please do submit those. Um, so Charlotte, on, on that point that Martin's made about, you know, know, you're making choices, you're making risk decisions, you're making ethical decisions. What are the investment opportunities at the moment? Um, you know, give us an understanding of, of sort of where you are looking to when it comes to where you might be thinking about some of those bigger returns. So we're generally looking medium term out there. I'm, I'm not trying to day trade my way through things. So we're looking at, at themes that feel comfortable at the minute. Um, some of those uh, are probably getting quite a lot of press at the moment. I, I would be saying that there is uh, interest to be had in, in the green energy space at the moment. Clearly, there's a lot of government regulation and, and support uh, coming through to encourage movements in that direction, as well as, I suppose, just the zeitgeist, if you like. I think people are feeling more... Um, willing to want to try and, and move in that direction. So um, there is support there. Having said that, we're not the only people to have noticed. Um, there's been a lot of pressure on those types of investments. So I think one does need to be careful in how you try and um, access those kind of areas. Um, similarly, I think um, things like digital uh, as, a, as a general theme perhaps has been given a bit of a turbocharge by COVID and the pandemic over the last couple of years. Clearly, the internet was a, a big change to, to life over the last few years anyway, but I think it's really forced all of us to do even more online perhaps than we were before, whether that's meetings and, and virtual uh, spaces as far as that's concerned, or just what we expect from the websites that we visit. You know, I think we anticipate that our ability to transact or interact with businesses has massively increased over that period. But that comes with cybersecurity issues, it comes with storage issues. So, you know, perhaps that's the cloud maybe coming into that, etc. So lots of areas in, in the digital space. And I think another theme that we're very much looking at is deglobalization, the the shortening of supply lines um, and that sort of thing, which we've very much seen. Again, the, the pandemic perhaps highlighted the risks of, of everything being outsourced to China or the Far East and, and suddenly you, you can't get at things or um, it's, it's harder to have control over it. So we're seeing businesses looking at trying to bring production uh, closer to home. Um, but that 
often comes with increasing costs. So then they're thinking about how they can tackle that. And I would say things like robotics and AI and that kind of thing is a way that businesses can consider reducing costs while still meeting that sort of bring it home uh, thought process on production. So those are some of the key areas we're looking at at the moment. Martin, what sectors are you looking at? <laughs> well, I wrote recently in my column, uh, I invited readers to suggest value stocks that you could, you know, tuck away and not worry about and that were kind of undervalued. And, and we produced a list and it did actually outperform the FTSE 100. It was things like Barrett, the house builder. House builders have been doing quite well. You can never really go wrong with, you mentioned big supermarkets, but, you know, those are fantastically well-managed businesses that, you know, um, come through all changes of circumstances very strongly. And so anyway, looking for value, undervalued, solid, safe, stocks is a good approach. I noted, however, that uh, although our reader portfolio had beaten the FTSE by a narrow margin, they we would have done much better to put our money into Meta, the parent of Facebook, or Tesla, both of which, had a, having had a huge fall, had a big resurgence. Yeah. But there you are. There's, there we are looking at risk yep. again. You know, US oh, tech stocks have been the hottest thing ever for the last few years. Could it go on forever? People said it couldn't, they fell. Now they're recovering a bit. If you're looking at, if you're looking at this from a UK perspective, yet another question your wealth manager is bound to ask you is how tolerant would you be of a sort of globalized portfolio? You know, do you want a piece that's in emerging markets? Or, you know, how happy are you with Europe, America, and the UK, a lot of fund managers, I'd love to hear what Charlotte says about this, really have quite small portions in the UK, even for the sort of middle of the road starter portfolio. You sometimes see surprisingly little in UK equities, which is a reflection, I'm afraid, of where the UK is. And the US is much more exciting. And if you're a bit braver, emerging markets, Asia and so on, more exciting still. It's certainly, I think, changed over the last few years. I think there was a time when um, investors expected to see quite a big chunk in the UK. And partially there's a thing around currency risk in that, you know, the idea of investing in your domestic market, because if your liabilities are in pounds sterling, it makes sense to, to hold your investments in pounds sterling. But you're absolutely right. You know, the, the UK market's not necessarily given you the returns that you want over quite some time. So actually it's made sense to, to broaden your reach. And the US in particular has very much been leading the way for, for quite some time. Now, much shorter term, actually, the FTSE 100 in particular, last year did pretty well because we have such a high weighting in energy stocks. And actually, compared to the US where they've got a big tech weighting, they had a rougher time of it last year. Actually, the likes of BP and Shell and so on really did mean that the FTSE 100 looked pretty positive um, in 2022 um, compared to other regions. So these things ebb and flow. Um, I think the nice thing about being investor whenever you're considering things, and particularly in a time where things feel perhaps challenging and difficult when we're living through the cost of living crisis, is that actually, first of all, markets look ahead. 
So actually, you're not looking at what's going on right now, you're looking at what's going to happen in the future. And secondly, you can be much more fleet of foot. So whilst we're living here in the UK, and most of us aren't going to suddenly decide that actually if we don't like it, we're literally going to relocate somewhere else. I mean, a few maybe will, but you know, most of us have got reasons to be here. As an investor, that's not quite the same. So actually, if I don't like the UK at a period, and I think there are other opportunities, I can just say, well, fine, we will reduce that waiting, we'll go somewhere else. So you don't have to be somewhere that you really don't think is, is a good place. Mm. And that really brings us on to political economy, Martin. Um, you know, they say businesses hate uncertainty, but investors don't love it either. Um, and there could potentially be some very big changes coming up in the UK um, that affect the economy, not least potentially change of government and leadership in the next 18 months. Can investors, should investors in any way be factoring in what a Labour government could mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know how you factor it in. But what what difference would a Labour government make? So, well, this is for, it. Is there but, a huge difference between the two yes, parties? Yes. So, right for now? example, taxes we might expect to remain high, might even get higher. Personal taxes, um, corporate taxes, which we could enter into a whole debate about, but. Uh, you know, beginning to look sort of punishingly high, even under this Conservative government, when the next rise in corporation tax goes through, that's very unlikely to be reversed too. So as a competitive economy, we're not going to be looking any better under a Labour government. However, I think history says that the stock market doesn't do too badly under Labour governments for, for some reason. Stock markets look forward, maybe they look forward to the fall of the Labour government, I don't know what it is. But history doesn't say that every time there's a Labour government, stock markets um, come thundering down. Um, so uh, one would expect a more, uh, uh, well, limited growth prospects, certainly high tax regime, certainly. Where interest rates are going, we don't really know, but we do expect them to peak in terms of official interest rates going up in notches. We think we're near the peak of that. So they may come down a little bit, but a realistic expectation would be interest rates will stay higher than they were in the previous decade when they were unnaturally low. They will stay up in the somewhere 3 3-4% there for some time, but that's not bad for savers. That gives you a little income on your deposit account, whereas for a long time you had no income at all. So I'd say don't panic again at the prospect of a Labour government, but I don't think it'll improve the state of the economy, but it, it, it shouldn't explode the stock market. We're just nearing the 30-minute mark, and I'm going to move to questions in a minute. We have loads coming in, which is fantastic. I'm going to abuse my position as chair to ask you to a few more questions. But just remember that you can submit a question as well. Uh, there's a small box underneath, um, uh, underneath the screen where you're watching this, and you can submit a question. It comes to the spectator team and directly to me, so I can hopefully put that to Charlotte and Martin. Um, Charlotte, I'd like to ask you, when your clients come in, is there any common theme about what they are investing for? Um, is there a common motivation? Is it about personal use of these funds? Is it about passing wealth on to the next generation? So it does vary hugely, but I think probably the, the key themes that we hear time and again would be 
investing for later life, so retirement and um, maintaining a lifestyle in, in retirement, covering care costs, that's certainly something that people worry about these days quite a lot. Um, but also I think that point about legacy, passing on to the next generation is also something that people are quite often um, keen to try and ensure. And so our role is very much trying to balance making sure that they've got enough to achieve all of those goals for their lifetime, um, whilst also doing what we can to set things up in a way that's going to be efficient and um, will allow them to pass it on in a reasonable fashion as well. Uh, Martin, do you think there's sometimes a problem with how we talk to um, people and, and, and actually specifically how people sometimes talk to their children about money? I noticed that in Charles Stanley's research, they found that 58% of people don't feel comfortable discussing money with children. If you don't have those conversations, how can you set them up for success? Well, quite, quite so. And um, well, Charles and I were just chatting beforehand about this and comparing the point of view where you, you might say to your children, well, look, I've brought you up, you've had a good education, you've had a good home, I've taught you good manners, I've taught you common sense, that's it, you're on your own. Or the further stage, really, is to be more of a worried parent, as it were. I think of the example of a friend of mine who decided he wouldn't retire until each of his children, he had three of them, owned a small flat in some outer zone of the London transport map and the beginning of a pension pot. So he worked into his late 60s and he achieved that for three children. Uh, or I think all one can say is, wouldn't it be good to launch your, the next generation into the world with some degree of you know, financial security, helping them buy a first home being the most obvious of those, if you can. But, as Charlotte says, your own circumstances in late, late life, in your 80s and 90s, can become very, very expensive. So no one, no, no one should, as it were, empty the coffers for the sake of the children who have a, you know, a fighting chance in life to get on with it, if that means they themselves mm -hmm. can't afford the care they need in later life. So it's a diff very difficult to judge that, but I think it's admirable to try and get your children on the, at least on the property ladder, and early rather than late, really. Otherwise, they're just going to stay at home and be a damn nuisance to you into their 30s and 40s. Who knows? Uh, Charlotte, another statistic that um, really took me by surprise was that just over a third of high net wealth individuals say they are currently helping a partner with the cost of living crisis or, or a quarter um, are helping their children. I actually, I say I was surprised. I probably shouldn't be surprised by that, but it is quite shocking um, statistic. Are you finding that clients are selling up because they need to meet the cost of bills, the need to meet the cost of food? It's not. Ex I wouldn't say it's exactly about the cost of bills and the cost of food, but I think we are definitely seeing um, trends where people are saying, "Look, if I can maybe." pass some money down to, say, adult children in order to enable them to reduce a mortgage or something like that so that you can take some of the strain off um, the day-to-day -day for them, um, hopefully in a way that's also putting them in a better position longer term. Um, I think there's often a thought process that feels like it's nice to do something that feels 
like it's really moving someone's financial position forward, if you see what I mean, for the future. Um, but definitely, I think the current climate is encouraging people to do something now rather than thinking, well, yeah, maybe I'll help them with that in a few years' time or when I die, they'll get some money and they can use it for that. They're sort of saying, no, there's a need right now and actually I want to, I want to act on that. Mm. Well, the last question I have for both of you is, um, in theory, a, a very simple question, but I'm not sure it is. Is now a good time to invest, Martin? That, I mean, there's never a bad time to invest, okay? okay. And, uh, and it's never sensible to just sit on a pile of cash. Uh, that would be my starting point for that. And of course, you don't know, we don't know where the stock market's going. Um, we, As I've said, we probably do sort of know where interest rates are going for the next couple of years. But... To do nothing is really foolish. To arrange your portfolio of assets in the way that you think is going to optimise your circumstances and give you security for the medium to long term should be an objective for everyone. So but that may sound uh, too simplistic, but I would say it's there's never a time when you shouldn't be thinking about investing or arranging your assets as best you can. No, that makes complete sense to me. But Charlotte, some people might be nervous about these turbulent times that we're in to think to themselves, oh, is this really the moment that I should take a gamble? Uh, is this really the moment that I take my cash and invest it? Oh, do you agree with Mark? I mean, obviously, if you jump in right at the top of a market and then watch it go down, it's not going to feel great. So I appreciate why people are perhaps concerned that the fear of missing out is is um, strong. But I would absolutely agree, first of all, that doing nothing is you know, fro frozen in headlights is, is not going to be the right answer. First of all, if you make sure that your assets are arranged appropriately, you may well be able to achieve tax efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So even if um, the returns on investment are quite low or, or relatively static, you're, you're potentially saving 20%, 40% or whatever it might be in tax. Well, you know, you try and get a 20% return or a 40% return on something. Actually, making sure that things are efficiently organised can still put you in a much better situation. I think the other thing is thinking about timeframes. Um, yeah, maybe over the first few months or something you might find that it doesn't quite work out, but really investing is something that you should be doing with a long-term time frame in mind, you know, at least sort of five years or so. And actually, in all likelihood, things will shake out in the wash a bit over that time. So, um, you know, I always think that uh, managing investments or, or being a client with investments, it's a bit like dieting. You don't get on the scales every day. You, know, you kind of you, you put it in, you do the work and eventually you would expect to get the results. Um, we're going to move into questions. There's so many coming in. Thank you for that. And just another reminder that if you have another question you'd like to ask or if you are holding back on asking a question, just pop it in the box right below your screen, send it on over, um, and they'll come straight to me. Um, so we have some really good questions coming in, Charlotte and Martin, and there's a very common theme that I've picked up on, which is cash. A lot of people are asking, how much money should they keep in cash when it comes to figuring out where they're going to invest? Martin? Well, I'm glad we've moved off dieting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> How much did you keep in cash? Well, uh, what can I say? If you, if you have plenty of cash to start with, you might say it would be sensible to keep three to six months' worth of running expenses in cash on a deposit account in case of some, you know, mishap, the roof falls in, you know, the insurance doesn't pay out, whatever it is. Uh, your child comes home and says they desperately need £10,000 to, you know, fulfil their lifetime ambition, whatever. So, but beyond that kind of a reserve for something that might happen in your domestic life that mm. you just need cash for, uh, don't sit on cash is my general Don't view. sit on much. Charlotte? Well, certainly cash is an important part of the equation. We'd never be suggesting that people don't have any at all. There are times when it might make sense to have a bit more there if, if people have got something on the radar that they're potentially thinking might might be required. So again, sometimes clients will say to me, oh, I'm thinking that I, I want to buy a house in the next 12 to 18 months, um, but can I do something with the money I've got saved for the deposit? Frankly, I'd be really nervous about trying to invest something like that over that sort of time horizon. There's too much chance that things go against you and then the deposit you've got is going to be worth mm. a lot less. That, that would be problematic. So in those kind of circumstances, do the best you can within the cash environment. You know, seek out a, a, a term deposit maybe that would sit your time frame or suit your time frame and, and give you a bit more or something like that. But absolutely, with inflation at 10%, even with interest rates having picked up a bit, there is no way that the value of that cash isn't going backwards in real terms at the moment. And yes, we've said that you, you, you're not necessarily going to be beating inflation and investments, but you've got far more chance of getting something a bit closer and certainly over longer term time horizons you've got more chance of, of beating inflation um, by being outside of cash so it's got a place but it's part of an overall package. Charlotte someone's asked how often people should be rebalancing their portfolios how often would you recommend to your clients that they switch things up? Well it is a really tricky one um, we're reviewing things in a few different ways. So on the one hand, we're looking at things every day from the point of view of the news flow on any particular stock or something that might change our view. So um, that could happen at any time. But the point where you stand back and look at the whole thing and kind of think, okay, what, what's ended up a bit overweight? What's ended up a bit underweight? What, what do I need to juggle around? You don't want to do that too frequently because markets are moving every day. It's never going to stay looking perfect beyond the market close at 4pm, 4.30. So um, we would normally look at something, say, quarterly, half yearly, with that big kind of overview. Again, um, it's, I'd say it's a bit like gardening. You, you plant your border up and things grow and, you know, you have to get in and prune it from time to time. You need to do the day-to-day -day weeding, but you're not literally ripping the whole thing out and starting again on a very frequent basis. Martin, would you have any ideas or recommendations around reassessing one's portfolio? Well, if you are the sort of person who enjoys following markets and looking at um, share prices every day, then uh, you may get a kick and a better result out of out of doing just that. And I, you know, know people who sit at home in their retirement years 
basically playing the stock market. But but that's a particular personality type, and they enjoy it. And they enjoy it. They love it, and they do it consistently, so they don't ease off. You know,、uh, and the problem it, is if you're going to do it that way, you've got to keep doing it、yeah. that way. Most people, I think, would much rather not need to do that, and and don't have the inclination or feel they have the talent to do it. So it's much better to allow a manager to do it for you, and you don't want a portfolio that's being constantly churned because that implies quite a lot of fees and transaction costs and. Margins between buy and sell, and so on, and so there are some of the great investors of the world, the likes of Warren Buffett, as it were, buy a big thing every now and then and sit on it for twenty years and do very well. And you know, we should keep those examples in mind. Martin,、um, we have a few questions about、um, you. You said you know, try to avoid. The, sh- the 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 desire to go for the short term and look at the medium to the long term. A few people are asking, well, is there any credibility in just following the trends? Can you can you do well out of that? Cryptocurrency is the main example that we're getting in the questions. Is that a savvy investment? One person asks. <laughs>、uh, well, new,、no, but then it's not really an investment. It's a gambling chip. Let's distinguish between things you can. Take a punt on,、mm-hmm. and they might dramatically go up in the short term, or they might wipe themselves out altogether. I mean, it ha- will have been very tempting these last few years to have a go on、um, uh, cryptocurrencies. And when I asked a question in the Spectator offices the other day, how many of you, all the young people, said they'd had a dabble,、uh, whereas I don't know any people of my age who are dabbling in it. At all, but it's not an investment category as such. It's a, it's an interesting, possibly exciting, gambling chip. So let, let's distinguish between highly volatile things that are out there that you can buy and sell,、uh, which are for the pot of money that's you know, you can really afford to lose, but you might just double it if you're lucky. That's one end of your. Asset portfolio, but it ought to be rather a small piece of the total portfolio, and it's a gamble. Charlotte, am, am you're, you're nodding along.、That? Um, no, I, I would agree. We we don't regard crypto as an investment yet.、Right. Um, it, it's not it's not there yet. I'm not. You know, maybe it will be one day,、um, but but not at the moment.、Um, it's not regulated really. You haven't got any protections in in that. And one thing that we've seen recently is this trend towards. The fact that、um, I mean, some of its advocates will, will regard that as a positive. The fact that it's taking you outside of, of some of the systems that they might might suggest are broken or, or dysfunctional.、Um, but、uh, the problem is, it's it's. Not necessarily giving you something that you can rely on. We've seen obviously some some failures in in some of those exchanges,、um, and one thing that's interesting is how regulators are saying, look, you might not be formally regulated in exactly the way that that other investments are. That doesn't mean you're outside the law. And so actually, again, we've seen、um, action taken, particularly、uh, in the U.S.,、um, which is、uh, curbing the way that. They're able to operate, and if you were investing in them, might be causing you some some problems and difficulties. So I would absolutely agree. At the minute, if you've got a little bit that you really don't mind if it totally goes, you know, treat it like going to the horses and have some fun.、Right. Fine, but it's it's that kind of approach.、Uh, Martin, somebody asks, is property still king, especially with the talk of house prices potentially tanking? 
Well, a roof over your head is clearly um, an essential of life and a fundamental part of most people's asset portfolio by the time they reach the age where they're looking towards retirement. So your own home is um, has a special category of value, as it were, in any sort of discussion like this. Is property going to go up again? It's coming down slightly at the moment. There's been talk of a, a plunge, a falling off a cliff and so on. Uh, some real doomster stuff, but that doesn't quite seem to be happening. But the fact is, for six or seven months, property prices have been notching downwards. They may continue to do that through this year. They will, in due course, begin to recover again. So as a long-term asset property, uh, you can't really go wrong, and you need somewhere to live. And if you can reach a stage in later life where you're unmortgaged, uh, you own your own home. That is an element of personal security, which is, you know, enormously valuable. Is buy-to-let property, on the other hand, um, is nowadays looks a much less attractive proposition, and it's kind of gone out of fashion. The tax treatment of rental income isn't favourable, uh, and the, you know, as property prices are going down, the possibility of a capital gain on your buy-to-let has gone away for the time being. So I would say now probably isn't the moment to be going into buy-to-let, but now is always a moment for owning your own home and preferably reaching the point where you're unmortgaged by the time you retire. Charlotte, someone's asked, what are the best assets to invest in for an ordinary person with a few savings? It's all about risk in the first instance. What, what, what are your goals and, uh, and what are you trying to achieve um, and how much risk are you prepared to take to get there? So um, once you've thought about those things, if you decide that you could tie some money up for a bit and, and it's money that you could afford to see go up and down in value because let's face it, investments are always going to be taking some, some chance of that happening. If you're talking relatively small amounts, I'd suggest that looking at some form of collective investment scheme is probably going to be a good place to start. So the likes of unit trusts and OICs, those kind of things, because um, they give you the chance to buy um, a fund that then has a lot of different holdings underneath. So you get to diversify your risk in a way that you can't with your your bit of money that you've got available to you. Um, but again, even within that, making sure that you're doing it through um, an appropriate uh, wrapper or product. If, if you haven't used your ISA subscription, then why not put, put some money into um, an ISA so any gains and, and income will be tax-free? Again, it just means that that investment's going to be working that little bit harder for you because it's not being eroded by, by taxes along the way. So. Um, that would perhaps be a good place to, to start for someone looking at the, the early stages. Uh, just a reminder to our audience that we have um, just under 15 minutes left, so uh, do submit your questions in the little box below the screen and they'll come straight to me and I'll, I'll try to get them in. We do have a lot here to go through still. Um, Charlotte, someone's asked, is now a good time to buy gilts? The gilt market was a very political topic actually over the past few months um, with our former Prime Minister. Um, what's happening in the market now and do you recommend it as a decent investment? 
Well, um, I mean, yes, October was a fascinating time, suddenly. It, it really was. Um, and uh, it, it was very interesting because we suddenly found ourselves in a situation where um, yields picked up dramatically from where they've been for a really long time. I, I have colleagues who've been uh, working with me for, for 10 years plus now. I don't regard them as being the newbies, and yet they had not seen interest rates at these levels. They hadn't seen gilts under par. Um, you know, it was all suddenly um, looking very different and, and making me feel very old. Um, they certainly look more interesting than they have done for quite a long time. Um, we've, we've probably spent 15 years saying that they just look very expensive unless you've got very particular requirements. Um, so they potentially have a place again. Certainly the bond market generally um, is, is more on the radar perhaps than it has been for, for some time now. You can get returns that are noticeable. Um, you can potentially see some, some capital return as, as well as an income return from that. And of course, bonds sit further down the risk spectrum than, than equities do. They're not, they're not as safe as cash, but they sit somewhere in the middle. Um, again, government gilts would generally be regarded as being safer than, than corporate bonds. And, and then you've got you know, the big quality ones versus the, the junk bonds and the high risk end of things. So it's all on a spectrum. Um, but certainly I think fixed income is, is a place that's suddenly back on the radar in a way that it hasn't been for a really long time. Martin, what do you think? Is now the time to buy gilts? And there are, of course, some index linked gilts, aren't there? But they've probably been priced accordingly in current circumstances. So they now look very expensive, don't they? Index linkers are a very specialist beast and they don't always behave exactly how you'd expect. So they do provide some inflation protection, but there are reasons why it's not automatic that, that it's just, oh, well, you're fine. You don't need to worry about inflation at 10%. So, yeah. But conventionally, any uh, sort of full-scale investment portfolio would contain an element of bonds, and I th think the short answer is, as Charlotte says, they they look a bit more attractive now than they were looking uh, when interest rates were absolutely at rock bottom. Uh, but I think you wouldn't buy gilts as as it, as it were as a vote of confidence in right. UK <laughs> governments and the UK economy. You might buy them just as a building block of a, a, a you know a, a fully th thought through portfolio. Um, Martin, you were talking earlier about energy companies and you know the ethical questions around that. And somebody's written and asking, why are renewable energy stocks not more dynamic, given all the concerns around carbon fuels and war disruption to oil and gas supplies? Well, we're in a short-term, we hope short-term, crisis of energy supply in which um, renewables have not advanced to the point that they can take up the slack, they can fill the gap filled by shortages of, of carbon energy supply. So the value of big carbon energy suppliers has gone up, the attention paid to renewables uh, businesses has consequently gone down a bit. That balance will readjust itself uh, when, let's hope, we're beyond the Ukraine uh, war and uh, normal circumstances return to energy markets, then I think there will be a huge swing towards renewables. So in a funny way now, if renewable, the price of renewable investments 
is relatively low. This might well be a good time to buy them for the long term because for sure by the end of this decade they will be right in the in the spotlight. But just now the the world is dealing with a short-term energy crisis to which the only available answer is to use more carbon fuel. So that's that's what's driving prices in markets now. Charlotte, those are some interesting ideas from Martin there about long-term investments. Is is that, broadly speaking, the, the take of you and Charles Stanley, that these are potentially have big uh, long-term payoff? But then, of course, there are so many different kinds of renewable energy. We don't know at this point which one's going to be truly successful by the end of the decade. I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, it, it's such a fast-moving area, isn't it? And I think we're not yet absolutely sure what truly the, the new energy of the future is going to look like. Mm. You know, is it going to be... Might not be created yet. Exactly. You know, is, is it going to be hydrogen fuel cells? Is it going to be, you know, nuclear? nuclear. Is it going to be, um, you know, are we suddenly going to run our cars on toothpaste? Who knows? You know, um, it, it, great. <laughs> um, it, it's still a very fast developing area. And I think that's where, um, you know, the very high risk approach would be looking at trying to find a, an individual stock or two to, to try and, and hang your hat on. Um, we're generally taking an approach of, of, of a broader sweep and finding ways of investing in the sector as a whole on the basis that there's a lot of relatively small companies out there all, all trying their thing at the minute. Um, some of them will fall by the wayside, it won't work. Um, some of them may end up being the new big big names of the future, whatever that might be, um, and you're hoping that you've you've got an in at the, the relatively early stages with, with some of those. Um, but I think one has to accept that trying trying to absolutely call it at this stage is is very hard and, and pretty high risk. The, um, the, uh, you know, the ideal investment for that might be some collective vehicle, an investment trust mm -hmm. or something that is then in turn investing in a whole portfolio of hydrogen, wind, solar, you know, uh, lithium battery ventures, some of which will come through and do well. But you know, what has actually happened uh, in the energy sector lately is that the likes of Shell and BP have been kind of backpedaling from their renewable investments in order to achieve a re-rating of their shares to match how you know Exxon and Chevron are performing by not being so interested in renewables. I mean, it's a perverse circumstance driven by the spike in the underlying energy prices. But there is a backing away from the renewable sector by big oil, big energy right. companies. So other newer companies are going to have to step into that gap. But picking them, as Charlotte says, is terribly difficult. So if you can find something that bundles them and gives you more chances, that will be better. And in absolute terms, they are some of the biggest investors in research and development in those yeah. areas still. I yeah. mean, you know, they are piling in money to that yeah. area at a much higher rate because, of course, they've, they've got the money available it. in a way that a small startup doesn't. So it, it's an interesting area. Um, Martin, there are quite a few questions coming in about quantitative easing. Um, someone says, you know, what can be done to stop our governments from money printing? Others say nothing can be done to stop our governments from money printing. And they're all leading to questions about um, hard metals and gold and silver and the extent to which they should play a role in one's investment management. What do you make of that? <laughs> um, okay, well, the sort of easier part of that is that 
gold at least, has an immensely long history of being a, a store of value that is that is portable, it's immutable, it you know goes on forever and so on. So there is always there are always people who are enthusiasts for gold and gold in that sense, if you're looking for something that isn't all this other stuff we're talking about, gold is a more sensible thing than crypto by a mile. Um, so yes, there there will always be people who are special enthusiasts for gold. It's not necessarily an obvious thing for the general portfolio, for the, as it were, the, the, the total amateur. But, but there are, it is proven long-term store of value and it's counter-cyclical. If everything else is going down, gold is often going up. That's gold. Quantitative easing, well, where are we with that? Will it ever, will they go on doing it? Is it a very bad thing? Um, Kate, you're more of an economist than I am, Certainly so you not. could offer a view too. <laughs> but what we we are not seeing the unwinding of the quantitative easing that's taken place so far. It probably has contributed to inflation. Mm -hmm. We many people always thought it would do, but it didn't to begin with because there were deflationary factors acting against it mm -hmm. that concealed its inflationary danger. Now. We probably recognise that it has been part of this inflation spike along with the physical shortages. I think we printed more money in the first year of COVID in the UK than we did in the full 10 years leading up yeah. to that year, when the economy was shut down, of course. So, yeah, these factors came together in a very inflationary way. Uh, so, I think optimistically one would like to see an end to uh, unconventional monetary measures, just as one would like to see a return to, you know, inflation at Two percent and interest rates at um, a comfortable rate that gives you a return on your deposit account. Whether we will, I just don't know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think investors thinking about all these, you know, asset allocation questions we're talking about today should obsess about quantitative easing. It's not something we can do right. do anything about. Right. You know, work uh, with the practical, with the you know the circumstances we're in. Um, Charlotte, someone writes in to say that they worry that so many people now use tracker funds. Uh, does this increase potential risks of their use? Can you talk us through tracker funds and what they might be getting at here? So um, a tracker fund um, mostly uh, will be uh, an exchange traded fund, an ETF or, or something similar. Um, and it's designed to um, replicate an index of some description. So classic examples might be the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 in, in the US. Um, and generally, um, because they're, you, know, you haven't got a manager that's trying to make any smart investment choices or anything else, they're literally just replicating what's going on in that index, um, it means that the fees for investing in them are usually pretty low. So they're quite cheap. So if you are thinking that the FTSE 100, for example, you, know, you, you think is a good place to be, one way of investing in that would be to just buy a tracker fund and, and it gets you that exposure quite cheaply. Um, their use has increased dramatically. Um, you know, the, there's uh, a lot of uh, companies now that have, have made it really their, their business to to provide these different things. And actually, you can you can almost gain exposure to anything. I mean, you were mentioning things like um, uh, ESG type investments and green investments earlier. And yes, you can buy trackers for lithium battery stocks or you know th this type of thing out there now. So there's some weird and wonderful as well as. Um, uh, you know, much more conventional. Um, 
I think it has changed the market. Uh, the nature of the tracker is worth bearing in mind. They're not all the same. Some of them are constructed using the actual physical assets underneath, so they, they buy appropriate numbers of shares in, in the underlying. Others use derivatives, and that can give you different exposures if the market moves dramatically. So it's worth understanding how your tracker works. Where I think it has made a difference is um, actually in the performance of the companies that are in an index, because it provides a layer of support, perhaps, to share prices um, that wasn't there before. Because if you're part of an index, you've naturally got a buyer in tracker funds that have to own your shares, whether you're doing well or not. So that perhaps provides a support. But equally, at the margin, if you're if you're the company that is number 101 or you know 100 in in the FTSE and you're perhaps having a, a perfectly average year. It's it's not gone particularly well, but it's not gone particularly badly. You're just chuntering along, but someone else has come along and, and shot past you and, and gone into the index and you're suddenly moving out. That's going to put selling pressure on your shares. So it's going to suddenly move your price, but without that really reflecting the fundamentals of your business. So I think at the margin, both positive and negative, it can create some odd movements for individual companies. And also it can perhaps mask the, the underlying in, in firms that are perhaps a bit more solid in an index. So there's some issues there. Um, my last question to both of you, and uh, it's just 1 p.m., so I'll ask for um, uh, brief answers if that's all right. But a, a reoccurring theme in these questions is just, you know, these are very difficult times. You know, what do you suggest I do, particularly in regards to inflation? Um, so, you know, if you had to give a top tip, really, in, in managing these very difficult times and managing inflation at, at over 10 percent, Martin, what do you think that would be? Um, I think the top tip is more on the side of, as it were, household management than investment. Mm -hmm. That is to say, know exactly what your outgoings are and how you can control them more tightly than you did before, I think will, will be a more effective tool against inflation than trying to juggle your investments. Because for the reasons we've said, you'll be jolly lucky to find something that right. beats a 10 or 11% inflation rate. But you may well find in the way that your life is organized, there are things you can cut costs on and your quality of life is not is not diminished. Mm -hmm. So I would look at your, your costs first and your investments second. I hope that's not entirely running against what we ought to be that's saying very here. But, yeah. Charlotte? No, I, I wouldn't disagree. I think um, I would probably say, you know, consider getting some help with, say, um, a cash flow plan to actually understand how problematic it actually is. Mm. So that sort of follows on, I suppose, with the longer term bit of, of what Martin's saying. Think about what your outgoings are. Think about what your long term plans would look like. And then, you know, you can consider actually does it matter? Have you actually got enough there that, that you can look through it and, and it's not a problem? Or is it potentially something where you need to maybe cut your cough slightly differently in order to, to manage that going forward? So I think taking that step back and understanding how much of a concern it is um, would be a key thing. The other thing I would mention is just bearing in mind this too shall pass. Um, you know, markets go up and down, inflation goes up and down. The expectation is that by the end of this year, it will feel a lot lower 
than it does at the moment. So actually making really knee-jerk reactions right now probably isn't sensible. You know, make sure it fits with your longer-term goals and objectives. Well, Charlotte and Martin, thank you so much for the hour you've given us with some um, truly insightful thoughts there on investment management and how we navigate very difficult times. Uh, huge thank you to our audience for tuning in from the officer at home. Uh, big thanks to Charles Stanley. Without them, a session like this would not be possible. And we hope to see you at another Spectator event soon. Take care. Charles Stanley Radio. Subscribe today to be kept up to date with our latest releases. To find out more, visit charles-stanley.co.uk forward slash charles-stanley-radio. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get less back than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.